We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp help.com slash gold in my early days i faced a pivotal moment in my career instead of following the herd into traditional finance i charted my own course despite skepticism i founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. If you're not watching these YouTube videos live and you want to, you got to sign up for notifications. People don't, some people don't realize they can do that, but you'll see it up there on YouTube, sign up. And if you're a sign up for notifications, then you will get notification of when my live podcast is going to come on. So you can make sure and tune in and actually listen to it as I am doing it. By the way, I want to thank everybody who listened to my podcast on Tuesday and who uh, liked the video. For the first time in a while, I've actually reminded my viewers to uh, like the video and subscribe to the channel, and a lot of you did. In fact, I got uh, over 10,000 likes so far on that uh, video from Tuesday, just three years, three days ago. My typical number of likes is around two to 3,000, so way more likes than I uh, normally get. You know, so ask and you shall receive you know, the squeaky wheel gets greased. And I, I squeaked and you guys uh, responded by, by greasing me. So I thank you. Do it again. You know, and one of the reasons I think that last video, it's got almost 200,000 views now on YouTube. My typical video is probably around 70, 80,000, maybe, maybe 100,000 sometimes. But sometimes it takes a whole week to get up there if I only do one. I've got almost 200,000 views on the video from three days ago. And I think one of the reasons that I got a lot of views was because you guys liked the video. Because what I was told and the reason that I asked people to uh, like the video is that when YouTube's algorithms see a new video where a, a lot of likes are there, they assume, oh, this is a good video, people like it, and now they start recommending it. It gets higher up in whatever the algorithm is. And so maybe I got a lot of new viewers uh, which is great because people need to be listening and watching my YouTube channel. So do it again, you know, like and subscribe. And I did notice a, a uh, bigger pickup in new subscribers as well because I asked for people to subscribe to the channel. Anyway, I want to get back to the actual podcast, starting off by talking about what happened in the markets because there was quite a bit of volatility in the markets. I mean, not so much the stock market. Uh, the Dow was down a bit on the week, but nothing big. I mean, it was down, I think, 1.4%. And in fact, the, the tech stocks were actually positive on the week. And, and the tech stocks are the stocks that should have got hit harder. 
based on the rise in interest rates, but they didn't. People were still piling into these names. So, you know, the NASDAQ 100 was up about, I think, a third of a percent. But look at the Kathy Wood ARK Innovation ETF. I haven't really been talking about that one uh, much recently, but it was up 2.2% on the week. Bitcoin rallied on the week, just like the other risk assets. The Grayscale Bitcoin Trust was up uh, 1.5% on the week. Oil continued uh, the big move up. I think that's part of what was driving bond yields, although oil came off its highs. I think Thursday night, we got over $95 a barrel uh, in the evening. And then we ended up finishing today just below 91. So over $4 off the high, but oil was still up about a dollar on the week. And and that helped to drive bond yields higher. That's really uh, half the big story in the market because the yield on the 10-year treasury rose on the week from 4.438 to 4.573. These are new highs going back to, I think, 2007. The intraweek high, which I think was yesterday, we got to 4 0.688 on the 10-year. The 30-year, the yield rose on the week from 4.521 to 4.711. Again, the highest since 07. And the intra-week high yesterday, we got above 4.8, 4.808, uh, getting closer to 5% yield. And I mentioned on the last podcast, the last time we had the 10-year at 5%, and it, you know, it got almost, you know, almost to 4.7. Um, but the last time the 10-year was over 5% was 2001. That really shows you how long it's been since yields have been that high. And that's actually not that high. And I think I said on the last podcast, it got to 5.2. I meant 5.02. I mean, we barely got above it in 2001 before, you know, the stock market bubble burst. We went into that shallow recession following, you know, 9-11, and then the Fed slashed interest rates to 1%, and then the yields really started to come down. But that was the high watermark, 5.02%. Uh, but I think we're going to go through 5% and keep on rising. I mean, 6 7% is, is far more likely because, again, we have a lot more debt now than we had in 2001 in all uh, facets of the economy. And the prospects for future inflation loom much larger now than they did back in, in, in 2001. So bond yields should be a lot higher, and they will be a lot higher. And it's going to be a much bigger problem for the market. You know, mortgage rates, I just read, hit a new 23-year high today. Although when I looked at where the average 30-year fixed is, it said 7.31, which didn't make sense to me because when I did a, a podcast last, you know, a week ago, I, I thought mortgage rates were 7.9 because I read that there was a, that, an article that they were at 7.9. So maybe there, maybe it's you know there were some that hit that high. I don't know. I mean, I know I read that. Uh, so maybe there's some 8% mortgages now somewhere, but the average, I guess, was never 7.9. It must have been lower if 7.31 is a 23-year a high. But again, the problems in the housing market are, are going to continue to get worse every time these mortgage rates tick up. The dollar rose on the week. Again, it continues to rise with bond yields. The dollar index rose from 105.58 to 106.18, although it reached its peak, I think, on Wednesday. The dollar index was down Thursday and down a little bit today. It was down more intraday, but it rallied back as you know the dow you know was positive in the morning and then sold off and so when the dow sold off the dollar rallied and um but the high was uh, on the dollar index was 106.84 so it almost got to 107 maybe the dollar index is is running out of steam here but the big story i think was gold gold was down about 70 bucks on the week i mean it was down almost every day and it was down another almost 20 bucks today. So it closed the week pretty much on the lows. We actually closed not only below 1900, but below 1850. We closed at 1849, I think. 
So gold, you know, that's a big move down. That's a 4% drop in the price of gold. Gold stocks got clobbered even more, uh, although it could have been worse because, you know, they, they didn't really go down much today. They were, they were flat, even though gold was down close to 20 bucks. And so maybe this is the end of the decline because people were reluctant to sell these gold stocks anymore. But the GDX was down 8% on the week. And the GDXJ, which are the junior miners, was down better than 10% on the week. Now, you know, this is not the, the move that I would expect given what's going on, although I understand it because you have so many people that don't get what's going on. They look at this rise in interest rates and they look at persistent inflation. And I'm going to get to the economic news in a bit. But the news that came out, again, was consistent with more inflation and the Fed being higher for longer. And that narrative is what's driving uh, gold prices down. Now, again, the market has this completely wrong. Just, this is all bullish for gold, and it's bearish for the dollar. It's not a sign that the Fed is going to have to fight higher, harder to win the fight against inflation. It's a sign that the Fed has already lost the fight against inflation. It, it, it doesn't matter if it fights harder. It can't win. And in the meantime, if it keeps on fighting, it is going to collapse uh, the economy, um, you know, every, every element of the economy, uh, the, the banking system, corporations, individuals, the state governments, the municipal governments, the federal government, everybody that's been borrowing money for the past, you know, 15 years, there's going to be a crisis if the Fed keeps interest rates at this level or raises them. But that's what they have to do. And the markets just seem to think that the Fed could do that uh, without, uh, you know, collapsing everything. And that that is impossible. You know, we've, we've gotten to a fork in the road now because the Fed has been able to successfully kick the can down the road. And we've now caught up to the can. And, you know, there's a fork in the road at this point. But no matter which direction the Fed kicks that can, there's an imminent disaster waiting. I mean, that's where we're headed. Because either the Fed um, keeps on fighting inflation and then causes this meltdown in the economy, or they try to avoid the meltdown in the economy and the banking sector, and they, they, they reverse, they pivot, they, they cut rates, or they announce that there's no more hikes. They, they announce a return to quantitative easing. Uh, they have to do one of these two things because either way, there's a disaster. But there's no policy choice this time, I think, where you don't have an imminent disaster. Anyway, I'm going to continue on that theme on the other side of this break. So stick around. As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete Me isn't just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information that you don't want on the internet. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeletemecom gold and use the promo code gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash gold, code gold. Well, anyway, I was talking about what's going on in the uh, in the markets now and the fact that the Fed is at a, a fork in this road uh, where it's been kicking the can. And at this point, you know, it doesn't matter which direction they kick that can. Either way they go, uh, they're headed for for disaster. And and before I actually finish up on that topic, I want to uh, circle back to the mining stocks. Because I want to, you know, mention, yeah, I own a lot of mining stocks. So my own portfolio, you know, really got beat up uh, this week. But it didn't bother me because I understand 
why this is happening. I understand that the majority of the investors out there that manage a lot more money than I do have no idea what's going on. And so they are just reacting uh, based on, you know, whatever their programs are for uh, the economic data. They see this data, interest rates going up, the Fed having to raise rates, and they just think, okay, that's that's bearish for, for gold. The problem is they're not thinking several moves ahead, right? Uh, they're, they're all playing checkers, right? I'm playing chess, and I see this through to the to the checkmate. I know how this game is going to end. I know that ultimately everything that's happening right now is bullish for gold, and it's bearish for the dollar. And that's part of what's keeping gold down is that the dollar is going up. But I know this is all a bunch of short-term noise because the traders that are making this noise have no idea what's around the corner. And again, remember, these guys had no idea that the 2008 financial crisis was around the corner, even though it was. Uh, and so it's the same people making the same mistake. So what I did personally to take advantage of this is I put a lot of the dry powder that I had built up over the last few months. You know, I, you know, I earned money and I've been deciding not to add it uh, into the market. I've been holding it in, in cash. Well, I put a good chunk of that to work this week, the majority on Thursday and on Wednesday. I actually didn't do any new buying today. I kind of like uh, stood back because the market's gapped up this morning. And so I didn't want to buy the open. And, and then, you know, they kind of rolled over and uh, they kind of got back down to the levels uh, that I bought yesterday. And I, I, I wasn't able to buy anything cheaper really today than what I bought yesterday. And so since I couldn't buy cheaper, I decided not to buy. But I, I bought quite a bit um, on, on Thursday and on, and on Wednesday in the mining sector specifically. In fact, that's really what I was buying. Uh, because those were the weakest stocks, and so that's where I wanted to buy. Even though I'm already, you know, very, very heavily concentrated in the mining stocks, it is my single largest allocation by far, you know, and has been for many, many years. Because I'm confident in the end game, and that's why every time we have a rally in these gold stocks, I, I don't sell, I don't buy into the rallies. Uh, but when, when we get a sell-off, I take advantage of that, and I, I keep putting more money to work. So as far as I'm concerned, I'm, I'm happy that gold sold off because it gives me a chance to buy more gold stocks at a better price. And I think everybody else should be viewing it the same way. Uh, because when this thing changes, when the people who don't have any idea what's about to happen find out, when they're blindsided by what happens then they're going to be rushing to buy gold. Uh, and who knows? I mean, the price could move up hundreds of dollars a day, $500 a day. I mean, what's happening now is nothing uh, compared to what I believe is going to happen when, you know, that uh, light bulb goes off. We get that emperor has no clothes moment uh, where all of a sudden the masses recognize what should have been obvious but was it like it's obvious the emperor's naked, but nobody wants to admit it until some little kid says, hey, look, I don't see his clothes. And now, OK, the rest of them, uh, you know, can see it, too. So I just want to be prepared. But here's one example, too, of that. Just just take the housing market, because I hear this all the time. Well, you know, the housing market, you know, it's not like 2007 or eight because we don't have, you know, this big subprime problem. We don't have a big rise in defaults. And so, you know, we don't, we're not going to have the same kind of crisis. They're wrong. The housing market and the banks are in worse shape. Not houses, rather, the banks, right? The banks are in worse shape and more vulnerable to the housing market now than they were in 2007 when everything collapsed and we had the financial crisis. Because the problem that the banks had in 2007, 2008 was defaults. Borrowers were defaulting on their mortgages. That was the problem. That's why banks lost money. If somebody didn't default, then the bank was fine. They just kept getting their mortgage. The problem was housing prices fell. And because housing prices fell, a lot of people decided not to pay because they had negative equity. Or a lot of people had adjustable rate mortgages because they got these teaser rates. And when the teaser rates reset, they couldn't afford it. Now, when they initially took out the teaser rates, 
they didn't even care if they could afford it because they just assumed that the house price would go up. And so they could refinance or they could sell and make a profit. So nobody really cared about what the future mortgage rate was. People just wanted to buy so they could jump on that train and, and get rich. So the problem was the banks had loaned out a lot of money with zero down or negative AM, and then housing prices went down, and then people started defaulting. And because of the defaults, the banks lost money. But the vast majority of mortgages didn't default. It was just a large enough percentage that it caused you know, insolvency at these banks, and now the, the Fed, everybody had to bail them out. Because you know it's a fractional reserve system. The banks hardly have any reserves relative to all these loans. So now you have a few mortgages going bad, a large enough percentage, and that's it. They're all, they're all insolvent. What's happening now is very different, but it's actually worse. And this is what people don't get. It's not about default now. In fact, defaults would actually help. The, the banks would actually be better off if people defaulted on their mortgages. The problem is the mortgage itself. The banks are losing money on the mortgage because they wrote these mortgages at 3%, and now they're in the sevens. The banks are losing money on every mortgage that's outstanding. So even though the people are still paying their mortgages, the bank is still losing. Remember, in 2009, the Fed slashed interest rates down to 1%. That meant all the mortgages that the banks owned that didn't default, they went up in value. Right? Those, all those mortgages appreciated because the Fed slashed interest rates. So even though they had some uh, mortgages that went bad, the mortgages that didn't go bad, which were the vast majority, appreciated in value. And even with that, we still had the financial crisis. But today, almost nobody is defaulting. Nobody is, is, is having a problem making their mortgage payment because the mortgage payments are 3%. And even if your house is underwater, which most aren't, nobody's leaving. They don't want to give up their 3% mortgages because it's a huge asset for the borrower. But that means it's a huge liability for the lender. You know, if more people defaulted on their mortgage right now, that would, that would be a relief for the bank. Because let's say you've got a 3% mortgage and you stop paying it. The bank is like, fantastic. You know, they could repossess the house. <laughs> they can sell it. Maybe they can sell it at a profit. Now, normally in foreclosure auctions, it's all cash. But they could actually say, hey, we're going to have a foreclosure auction and we'll loan you the money because they could do a new loan at seven and a half, eight percent and tear up that three percent mortgage. It's a huge win if if the banks get defaults. In fact, they would pay people to default right now. Right. If they had the money. So this is a very different crisis, but it's worse because they're losing money on every single mortgage they have, whether or not they go into default. So it's not about default this time. So this is bigger. It is a bigger problem for the banks. They are losing more money, and they will lose more money now than they did in 2008. That means we need an even bigger bailout. All these too-big-to-fail banks have an even bigger problem now than they did then, and it's going to take an even bigger round of QE to bail them out. The problem is, how's the Fed going to do that when inflation is as high as it is and going higher? Anyway, I got another break. We'll come back and I'm going to finish up this analogy. Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. All right, so I'm talking about why the banks are actually in worse shape now than they were in 2008 when we had the financial crisis. 
And nobody seems to think that's an issue because they're focusing on defaults. Well, there's going to be defaults eventually, but defaults are not the problem. The problem is people are paying their mortgages on time and they're not defaulting. And the banks are losing a fortune on every single one of those mortgages. And again, the other problem is the banks are losing their deposits because their depositors want yield. You can get five and a half percent in, you know, in, or money markets. You just have to loan your money to the U.S. government. I mean, this is the ultimate in crowding out. Everybody wants to take their money out of the banks, uh, and the banks, in theory, could loan that money to the private sector, but they want to take that money out of the banks and put it in a money market that's loaning the money to the government and getting over 5%. So private businesses can't get credit because all the credit is going to the government to finance these massive uh, deficits. So the banks have these problems. Again, what are the banks doing now? How are they surviving? They're going to the Fed and they're saying, hey, our customers are taking out our money. So we're going to take our mortgages and our, our treasuries. We can't sell them because then we'd be bankrupt and you'd have to be bailing us out with the FDIC. So what we're going to do is we're taking these bonds to the Federal Reserve. And now the Fed is going to give us par when they're worth 60 cents on the dollar. And then we could take that money and give it back to our depositors who are now going to loan it to the U.S. government. But these are loans. How are the banks going to pay back the money that they got from the Fed when they've already given it to their customers? The banks don't have the money. So either the Fed is going to have to extend the loans indefinitely, which they probably will do, or they're going to force these banks into bankruptcy. And then the FDIC has to bail them out, except the FDIC doesn't have any money. Right? This crisis is, is so easy to see. Yet I, I watch these financial pundits, and it's just amazing that there's no one there. I mean, on CNBC, at least in 2007, they'd have me on there, Dr. Doom, right? I was warning about the financial crisis. Of course, everybody laughed at me, but now they don't have me on. There's nobody warning, right? There's not a single person. There's no Dr. Doom, right? It's all, uh, you know, uh, sunshine and lollipops. I mean, there are some guys that are like, well, maybe the market will be a little lower this year. You know, nobody really could see the magnitude of this crisis. And, you know, when it comes to real estate, it's not just residential real estate. That's a worse problem now than it was in, in 08. But it's commercial real estate, which wasn't even a problem back then. I mean, it was a problem in that we had a great recession. And so, you know, that pushed up vacancies in some of the offices. But it was offset by interest rates going to zero, not one zero percent. When the Fed put interest rates at 0%, that was a boom for commercial real estate. So even if you lost some of your tenants because of higher unemployment or the recession, the tenants you had left that were still paying, those income streams were much more valuable because of what happened to the cap rates, right? Real estate soared because the Fed rose, you know, dropped interest rates. So there was no commercial real estate problem really at all. It was a residential problem. Uh, mainly subprime, but not not only subprime, but it was a residential mortgage problem. This time we have a bigger residential mortgage problem because the banks are losing money on every single residential mortgage on their books. But the commercial real estate is a disaster, the perfect storm of disasters. You have rents have collapsed because of the vacancies from COVID. People are working from home. So the, the office office space is empty. Companies don't need all this space. Uh, retailers also, people are shopping online. So you've got a lot of empty store space in, in the strip malls or the big giant malls. So real estate is getting killed. At the same time, interest rates have soared. So now the cap rates have exploded. Uh, the revenue is imploded. You're getting hit from both sides. Commercial real estate is down like 50%. In some markets, it's down 60, 70%. We had nothing like this in 2008. And the banks are exposed. They were not exposed back then. Uh, so this is a much bigger problem. And again, it's not just the banks. All these financial companies, the insurance companies, are in a lot of trouble. And they're trying to raise their premiums. In fact, I just read an article in the Wall Street Journal the other day. I, I tweeted it out, pointing to how much insurance rates are going up. I mean, I even mentioned on the podcast, my own homeowner's insurance in Connecticut doubled in price. Uh, but it talked about how landlords are facing this big problem because they're 
uh, um, insurance rates are going up so much because the insurance companies are losing a fortune and they need more money. Where do they get it? They get it from their uh, customers who have policies. And that's what's driving up, you know, costs for homeowners or commercial uh, homeowners. They've got to pass this on, right? They've got higher mortgage rates, higher insurance costs, uh, maintenance costs are going up, taxes are going up. Uh, and the governments, all the governments are in so much worse shape now than they were in 2008. And all those highly indebted governments, right? Well, they got bailed out too when the Fed slashed interest rates down to zero. That was great for all the big cities that had a lot of debt. It's great for the federal government that had a lot of debt. But look where rates are now and, and where they're headed. So every aspect of society, the banks, other financial companies, pension funds have a much bigger hole. Uh, and, and much more unfunded liabilities. And again, the U.S. government guarantees, not only does it guarantee all the banks, it guarantees all the pensions. You know, so this, this is a much bigger problem. And nobody seems to be worried about it. Nobody seems to be talking about it. Other than me, now there's probably a few other podcasts that I don't watch on a regular basis, but the mainstream media is not saying a thing. They are completely asleep, which is why the price of gold went down, which is why I had the opportunity to buy more gold stocks at ridiculously low prices. So again, I would encourage my audience to do the same thing. You know, buy more gold stocks. Check out the Euro Pacific Gold Fund. Uh, you know, you can buy it anywhere. Talk to my brokers at Europac.com. Call up your shift gold broker. Buy this $70 drop in the price of gold back below $1850. Buy some silver. Uh, these prices, when you look back at them, uh, are, are complete gifts based on what's going to happen. I mean, it should be apparent that this crisis, either way, I don't care what the Fed does, it's bullish for gold and silver. They can keep on hiking and create a financial crisis and an economic implosion. I know when that happens, they're going to they're gonna cave and they're going to go back to QE. I mean, could you imagine? Like, everything is imploding. Banks are failing. Uh and the Fed just says, nope, we're going to keep fighting inflation. There's no way. They'd fire Powell in a heartbeat. Remember, Trump was thinking about firing him because he had little rate hikes. Imagine what would happen if banks have failed and, 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 and the Fed just sits on its hands and says, sorry, we're fighting inflation. It's not going to happen. And certainly not in an election year, which, you know, we have a big election year. So I don't care. If the Fed keeps fighting, gold's going to take off. If they surrender, well, it's going to take off even sooner. And then it's going to go even higher. But it's not going to matter, right? Either way, um, dollar's going to go down and gold's going up. This is just the mother of all head fakes. And you want to fade it, right? That's how you make a lot of money in investing. You want to bet against the consensus when the consensus is wrong. Now, if you end up being wrong, well, that's the risk, right? If I'm wrong, then I'm going to lose. But if I'm right, I'm going to make a fortune. So I like my odds. I think it's stacked in my favor. I make a lot more if I'm right than I lose uh, if, I'm, if I'm wrong. Anyway, a couple of the topics I want to talk about. One is we've got this government shutdown, supposedly, that's um, going to be happening um, over the weekend if uh, they don't agree to uh, you know, uh, pass some omnibus spending bill or something like that. But, you know, the Republicans, I hear them talking and they say, well, you know, we have a condition of uh, doing this. One of them is we want, we want a commission, right? They want a commission to study the debt problem, the national debt. We don't need any more commissions. Congress has been creating commissions to study the debt, you know, since the debt was under a trillion dollars. Now it's over 33.1. It's already added an extra 100 billion since we just cracked 33. We'll be at 34 trillion uh, shortly. But the commissions don't do anything. In fact, they actually add to the debt because we have to spend money creating these commissions. And wh what are the commissions going to tell us? That we got a big problem? We already know we have a big problem. We don't need a commission to learn the obvious. And then the commissions themselves, you know, they run up the debt because we have to spend money. See, the reason that politicians want a commission is because then they can say, you see, I voted to have a commission to study the debt as if that means they're doing something about the debt. They're doing nothing. That's just all smoke and mirrors. And then it, when, the, when the commission comes out with a recommendation, they don't even follow it. 
And their recommendations are not even enough to do the job because if they actually made the real recommendations, there'd be no chance that anybody would do it. So they come up with a half-assed uh, recommendation and even that is too much and nothing gets done. And even once in a while when they agree to do, to do something, everything they agree to do is in the future. Okay, yes, we'll have some of these cuts, but not now, in the future. And then before the cuts kick in, they get rid of them, right? It never happens. And so this is all politics. We don't need these studies, right? I'll save the government a lot of money, right? You got a huge problem. You got to cut government spending right now. And you should start with defense, Social Security, Medicare, Obamacare, all the big ticket items. That's where you got to cut. Meaningful cuts right there. Now, you can cut across the board. There's a lot of agencies and departments that we can get rid of. But you got to cut these entitlements, and you got to do it now. You can't say, well, we're going to cut Social Security, but not for anybody who's currently receiving it. No. It's the people who are currently receiving it. They're the problem. We got a deficit right now. So we got to cut the spending to the people who are getting the benefits right now. Now, and if we're going to raise taxes, we got to do that right now. And not on the rich, because that's not going to raise the revenue. You got to raise on the middle class. But of course, the middle class can't even afford to pay the taxes they're paying right now. They're broke, in case nobody's noticed. That's why they have no savings. That's why they're running up their credit cards. That's why they're working two or three jobs. So they can't afford to pay any higher taxes. That's why there is no a way out. We're, we're totally screwed. And by the way, talking about Congress, you know, I want to mention Dianne Feinstein uh, passed away today. She's 90 years old. And, you know, my condolences to uh, her uh, family, although I doubt any of her relatives are watching this podcast. But I don't want to, you know, just make light of her death, although she lived a full life, you know, 90 years old. I mean, most people will take 90, although I'm, I'm shooting for more than that. You know, I'm in the hyperbaric chamber every day. Uh, I'm doing... Uh, uh, cryo and red light every day, and I got a sauna. I'm doing intermittent fasting, taking supplements. So I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to to make it to a, a ripe older age than that. Uh, but she was 90, uh, although pretty infirmed. I saw some of the photos of her, you know, recently. I mean, she was having a hard time. She was in a wheelchair, but she was still in the Senate. This is my point. She's been in the Senate for more than 30 years. And the only way we got rid of her is she died. And now the seat's going to turn over. But this is not the way it's supposed to be. We need term limits. We can't have people occupying the Senate seat for life, right? These are not monarchs, you know, where we, you know, uh, somebody is a king until they die and then we can finally get another king, or in this case, a queen. No, we don't have, we don't have to wait for the senator to pass away to have somebody replace them. We, they need to go because they've been there too long, right? They, they, they're, they're out of the real world, living in the bubble of Washington, D.C. These senators can't be there. And of course, before that, she was the mayor of San Francisco. I mean, she's been in public service. We need our public servants in the private sector, you know, working so they understand what it's like to deal with the rules and regulations that they pass. In fact, usually when Congress passes rules and regulations, they exempt themselves from it anyway. So they don't even have to deal with it. Well, I want people to be in the real world working uh, and, and understanding the consequences. You know, there was, what was it, famous uh, senator, I think it was Hubert Humphrey, right? After he retired from the Senate, he went and he opened up like, I don't know, a bed and breakfast or something. And I think he ended up going out of business because of all the regulations. And he finally said, you know, these regulations really, you know, make it hard to run a business. Um, you know, I, I didn't realize that before. Yeah, that's why we want our uh, politicians to have the private sector experience first. Don't wait until you're, you know, retired and really old to realize how much harm that you've been doing. You know, experience all that harm and then take that experience and knowledge to Washington, D.C., right, and help get rid of these rules and regulations. So Dianne Feinstein is a perfect example of why we need term limits. You know, by the way, the senators, they used to be um, appointed by the state legislature. That's how the founding fathers envisioned the Senate working. And that changed with the, the uh, 17th Amendment, which was passed in 1912. Um, but there's no way that any state legislator would have reappointed, you know, um, um, Dianne Feinstein at the age she was. No, they would have replaced her. 
with somebody else. The reason is because of the voting. Now, I, I, on Twitter, Twitter, you know, somebody, uh, or X rather, not Twitter, I, 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 I X this thing out. And, um, you know, somebody said, well, shouldn't it be up to the voters, right? Let them decide. And I said, well, no, I don't think it should be up to the voters in this case. I mean, we need to make a decision as a nation that we want more turnover. I don't care what the local voters say. It's bad for the country to have these people in here. But part of the problem is when you're an incumbent, you have an advantage. And the longer you've been an incumbent, the bigger that advantage. So the longer you've been there, the harder it is for your challenger to get rid of you because he can't compete. These senators that are in there, they lock up all the big donors. And of course, nobody wants to give money to the loser, right? Because when you're giving money to a politician, you're buying some advance favor, right? They owe you one, right? So if you're a big donor to some politician and then they win, well, you know, you you get a payback, you get a return on that investment. But if you back the losing horse, you don't get anything. So if I'm trying to, you know, place my bets, on, you know, and I and I want to win. Who am I going to back? The incumbent who's already won four elections, five elections. What's the odds that somebody is going to beat this entrenched incumbent? Pretty small. So the longer they stay in office, the harder it is to vote them out. So we got to we got to have legislation that says term limits, and you're out. That's the only way to get rid of them. Um, anyway, you know, I watched the Republican debate, and this really goes into what I'm saying because I think that the best guy. Uh, uh, is Doug Berman. And not that I agree with everything the guy says. I agree with a lot of what he says. I think he's the most electable, the most experienced, the best qualified person to be president. And that would include, you know, Donald Trump. And I also think he's probably the most likely to be able to beat Donald Trump if it was head to head, right? Just him and Trump. Although, you know, it's still, I mean, it's in a, in a crowded field, nobody's beating Trump, including, including Berman. But that's because he has all this private sector experience. He was a very successful businessman. But more importantly, then he's a very successful governor. So he's already made the transition from the public sector to the private sector. He point, I mean, from the private sector to the public sector. He points out he's created more jobs than any of the other candidates. And that would probably that would include Donald Trump. Um, and and he and he's already successfully brought that experience to the state, North Dakota, cut government spending there. Uh, you know, the state is doing great under his leadership. So he's got a great track record uh, to bring to the voters. I mean, there's no way. Biden doesn't stand a chance against this guy. That's probably why the media is ignoring him. You know, he was, you look at the, the, the debate, and he was way on the end, right, I guess because his poll numbers were low. And I think he said he got about eight minutes total. I think it was like 45 or 50 minutes into the debate before he got his first question. A lot of people had already tuned out by then. They didn't even get a chance to hear him. And part of the other problem with the Republican debate is they wasted all their time on a bunch of nonsense when we are on the cor- you know, the, 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 the precipice here, about to go over a cliff. We have a massive financial crisis. You know, that was the same thing, you know, in the 2008 uh, campaign. You know, when they were running for that in 2007, I was saying the same thing. Hey, we have a major crisis coming in real estate and no one's talking about it. Right. Uh, but this is an even bigger crisis. And they mentioned the debt a little bit. And in fact, at least. Um, what's his name? Um, from I, sometimes I just I just forget names. Um, from. Um, They, 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 yeah, this is people are going to make fun of me for this one because um, what, what happens when you're 60. So I'm going to have to um, I have to look. Why am I why am I like freezing on this? Oh, DeSantis. Now I remembered it. I didn't find it on the internet. You know, sometimes something the word is like you know I had to bring it from the back of my head to the front of my head. <laughs> so be, I, I I thought of it before I even got a chance to Google it. But so one of the things that DeSantis said is that at least he blamed the deficits on Trump, too. Right? He talked about, and this was early in the debate, and he mentioned that, um, that the deficits were running up you know, before Biden. And so this is the Trump deficits as well as the, um, the Biden deficits. But there was hardly any talk about the deficits. And, and, and no talk about what to do about it. No talk about cutting government spending. Nothing. 
it was a, it was nonsense issues that were being discussed um, the entire time. Anyway, I want to finish up though today's podcast. I want to talk a little bit about my bank again. You know, I'm still doing this lawsuit in uh, in Australia, but a couple of news items came up to just really highlight to me just you know, you know the ridiculous nature of how you know I got railroaded. But so I read in the papers it was like a week or two ago, and I I, I I've been meaning to mention it, but I I've been my podcasts have been running long, and so I just have I finally have a little time to get to it. But a couple of weeks ago, I read that. Banco Credito in, in, in Puerto Rico, which got shut down by the Puerto Rican regulators, just like mine was. Mine was shut down in um, June of 2022, June 30th. And in fact, tomorrow, it will be 15 months full since my bank was shut down. And not a single customer has gotten any money in 15 months, right? In the 15 months before my bank got shut down, I returned 75% of my deposits to customers who asked for their money back because they got scared, right? That, the, all, the bad publicity created a run on my bank. And then when my, uh, bi- my, my partners you know, refused to do business with me, the services really went down. And so my customers asked for their money back and I had it. I sent it back because I was a 100% reserve bank. We had all the money there. So my customers wanted $200 million. I sent them $200 million. No problem. I didn't need a bailout. I didn't have to go to the Federal Reserve or anybody else. I had the money. Probably the only bank that could do that. But the last 25% of deposits, like, I don't know, $67 million, ever since the government of Puerto Rico took them over, they haven't sent back a nickel, even though all the money is there. And, of course, you know, the pretense for putting me out of business was that I was insolvent, even though, of course, I was the most solvent bank in the country. Uh, you know, all these other banks are insolvent, except mine was in, in great shape. But anyway, um, this other bank, Banco Credito, uh, the, the OSIF took them over the same way. They gave them a cease and desist. They, they, they put them into receivership, just like with my bank, except this bank actually was insolvent. And I don't know if anyone's gotten their money out of that bank either. Maybe it's, maybe OSIF's holding on all that money too. But the article that I read was that this bank just got fined $15 million by the U.S. government, not the Puerto Rican government, for violating the Bank Secrecy Act, which is anti-money laundering. They said that they weren't doing enough to make sure their customers uh, weren't laundering money or evading taxes. So they got fined $15 million. Now, I was investigated by the U.S. government, you know, for over two years. In fact, the investigation started almost four years ago. It ended about two years ago because they spent over two years. And it wasn't just the U.S. government who investigated me. It was like five governments. It was Australia. It was Canada. It was the U.K. It was the Netherlands. Then Portugal and and Puerto Rico. They didn't find a single violation. I didn't get fined by anybody for uh, uh, not doing enough to combat money laundering. Nothing. I didn't get fined a nickel because they didn't find anything. We did an excellent job. We went above and beyond when it came to onboarding and, and KYC and, and, and making sure everything was legitimate. And so I didn't get fined. But what really bothers me is when OSIF shut down my bank, they called a press conference. When they shut down this bank, they didn't call a press conference. And the IRS you know, came to the press conference to shut down my bank. And the guy said, this shutting down this bank sends a message that uh, the U.S. or the Puerto Rico, we won't tolerate money laundering or tax evasion. Well, why didn't they have a press conference about this bank that actually did money laundering and, and use it as an example? I mean, why did they pick the bank that didn't, that didn't help its customers launder money? They got another bank that got fined $15 million for doing exactly what they pretended my bank did, but it didn't because they didn't find me. I mean, believe me, they would have liked to have fined me $15 million, <laughs> but I didn't do anything wrong. So they couldn't find me. They just figured out how to shut me down uh, instead by pretending I was insolvent when I was probably the most solvent bank uh, in the country, certainly the most solvent bank in, in Puerto Rico. Uh, but nothing, no, you know, they're not using this bank as, a, as an example. No press conference with this bank. And in fact, not only did they get fined $15 million for money laundering, uh, they also got fined and they, they, they got convicted of, of bribery. There was a bribery scandal with this bank. I mean, this bank did so much worse stuff. I didn't do anything wrong. 
All that happened with my bank was 60 Minutes Australia decided to pretend that I was masterminding this massive uh, money laundering tax evasion scam when it turned out that none of that was true. And they had no proof that it was true when they accused me of doing it. But, you know, the media, the government leaked this information illegally. And here's another thing that I found out that also really, really pissed me off. So if you go back to the 60 Minutes story, which you can't watch anymore because 60 Minutes finally took it off the Internet, right? It was up for over two years. And then in one of the hearings we had, my attorney said, you know, by the way, Judge, even though uh, 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 Nine Entertainment has admitted that they have no proof that any of the allegations from this broadcast were true and that they've already been ruled defamatory by the court, the broadcast is still on the Internet. And so the judge said, yeah, I guess that's going to be a problem for them. And it was only then that they decided to take it down after leaving it up there for, for, for years, right? But so you can't go back and look at it now because, because it's gone. Uh, and it's very rare that, you know, uh, a, a publisher is going to take down a broadcast, right? You know, they had to because it was defamatory. Now, of course, Charlotte Grieve hasn't returned her award yet. She got award for excellence in journalism for that very broadcast. Well, how do you get a, an award for excellence when your broadcast was defamatory? I mean, it's not, you know, it's not excellent when you defame somebody. I mean, I think the reason she got the award is because the, the, the company that gave the award, City in Australia, they thought that she did a great job of, of, of uncovering this big fraud that I was perpetrating. That's what she got the award for, for finding me, for outing me, right? Aha, we got this guy red-handed. He's about to go to jail. He's been orchestrating this giant tax evasion money laundering scheme, and we broke the news. We're telling you about it first. But the whole thing was a lie. They got the story wrong. Yes, it turns out I was being investigated. They got that part right. But the investigation exonerated me. They jumped the gun. They didn't just say I was being investigated. They said I was guilty. They didn't, they didn't wait you know, for the results of the investigation. They just came in and declared that I was guilty. And, and, and so they won these, this award, she won this award because I guess they assumed that she was right. Well, she was completely wrong and she lost the defamation lawsuit. Uh, so, you know, but she still hasn't given back uh, that award. But this is, this is the point I want to talk about here. So the, the main way that they said that, aha, we got you, you know, Peter Schiff, your bank was no good is because they got this guy, Simon Akatil. And I, I talked about him in my response video, but Simon Akatil, uh, was the founder of this company, Plubus Payroll. And Plubus Payroll <clears throat> uh, was the perpetrator of the biggest tax fraud in Australian history. They stole about $105 million <clears throat> from the Australian Treasury. <clears throat> and they eventually <clears throat> got all these guys, <clears throat> and they, they got convicted. And just recently, a couple more guys w got convicted, and they're going to jail, right? And that's you know why I read this story. Now, when I read the story, in the story, it said that, that Plubus had over 100 bank accounts that they were using to launder money. 100 bank accounts. So 60 Minutes made a big deal. They said, hey, Peter, you had this guy, Simon Akatil from Plubus Payroll, and he had an account at your bank. That proves that you have bad compliance because, you know, you banked this guy and he was a notorious organized criminal. Well, first of all, he had no record when he opened the account. So how could we have known? I mean, I don't have crystal ball. We didn't know that he was going to eventually uh, be convicted of a crime because he had a clean record when he opened up his account with the bank. But think about it. If 100 other banks were banking this guy, clearly, you know, he fooled a lot of banks. Are all of those banks guilty of money laundering? Because they all had him as a customer. Why did 60 Minutes single out my bank? What about the other 100 banks? Why aren't they guilty of money laundering and tax evasion because they bank Simon Alcantil too or other people from Plubus Payroll. And of course, as I pointed out in my other podcast, we closed his account years before he was convicted. My compliance department closed the account. But here's something more important that I never really talked about. So the account that Simon Alcantil had at my bank was a corporate account, but it wasn't for Plubus Payroll. It was for some other company he had. He tried to open up an account for Plubus Payroll. He filled out the application for Plubus Payroll, and he was rejected. My bank actually turned Plubus Payroll down. We could be the only bank that turned it down. A hundred other banks accepted Plubus Payroll accounts. My bank turned it down. So wait a minute. 
They, they said, hey, Peter, you're a bad bank. You're subject to a bad bank. No, we turned down Pluba's payroll. And then it actually gets better because after my bank turned down Pluba's payroll, refused to open up an account, Akintil tried to wire money to his other account that we did open. He tried to wire it from Pluba's payroll. And we rejected the wire. We bounced it back. We said, no, we're not taking that wire. He tried three more times. And every time he tried to send money to his other account from Pluba's payroll, which is the company that was doing the tax fraud, we rejected it. And then after the fourth attempt, my compliance department said, you know, that's it. We're not doing business with this guy. And we froze the account. So we're probably one of the only banks that actually ferreted this guy out because my compliance was that strict. A, we refused to open the Plumas account, and then we closed his other account because we were monitoring it, and we saw these wires that were coming in from a company that we were suspicious of. Long before the Australian government was suspicious, my bank's compliance department did a lot better job than the Australian government, did much better job than these other 100 banks that were helping uh, Akatil launder money. So it's just the ultimate in irony uh, that this is the case. You know, so not only was my bank probably the most solvent bank, and it got shut down for being insolvent. It was probably the most compliant as far as how much we did over and above to um, prevent money laundering and, and, uh, and tax evasion. Again, I said, we turned down 75% of our applications, and we had a screening process. A lot of people didn't even apply because we didn't take charities. We didn't take politically exposed people. We didn't take corporate accounts in gambling, sex, uh, pot, crypto. I mean, there were so many. It's a long list. Why didn't we want those companies? Well, well, because they had a higher propensity to have money laundering or tax evasion. So we just refused to take them. And, you know, one of the reasons we didn't take Americans is because Americans are more likely to evade their taxes than anybody else because America is the only country that taxes you on your worldwide income. So if you're an Australian and you move to Dubai, like the guy they claimed was a drug trafficker. He was an Australian citizen living in Dubai who opened up an account with my bank. Now, he never even funded it. That's the, the irony of it. He never even put any money in my bank, and they accused me of helping him you know, launder his drug trafficking money when the drug trafficking conviction was like 30 years ago, and you know, he didn't even go to jail. But if you're an Australian and you move to Dubai, you don't owe any taxes. Australia doesn't tax you. If you make the money from another country, Australia doesn't tax you, and Dubai doesn't have an income tax. So you can go to Dubai as an Australian, and you have no tax obligation to evade. But if you're an American, and you move to Australia, and you move to Dubai, rather, the U.S. government still wants a cut of what you earn. Amer the U.S. government taxes you no matter where you are. And, and so I knew that by not dealing with Americans, I would cut down on the risk of somebody that would use the account for tax evasion, because Americans are more likely to try to evade taxes than anybody else, because the U.S. government is that much more oppressive. If you don't like high taxes in Australia, and you're not Australian, just move to Dubai and you've solved your problem. You don't solve that problem as an American moving to Dubai. You have to move to Puerto Rico. But of course I did that and then the Puerto Rican government uh, uh, punished me for it. But anyway, the last thing I wanted to mention, and I, I've been trying to do this and I haven't had any luck. I would like all of my podcast listeners to contact their local congressman. Congress is better because the Republicans have the Congress. And if you have a Democratic congressman, probably won't work as well as a Republican. But contact your Republican congressman from your district and, and, and demand that they open up a congressional investigation into what happened to my bank. And in specifically, the IRS, the top guy at the IRS, Jim Lee, right? He's the chief. He's the number one criminal guy, the top cop at the IRS. He is the one that obstructed justice, abused power, violated my constitutional rights. Everything this guy did was illegal. Where's the congressional investigation? You know, this is a gift to the Republicans, right? They, they, they're looking for something, right? They've always said that, well, you know, the, 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 the government weaponizes the IRS. They target conservatives. They targeted me, Everything that happened to me was because of my political views that I have expressed about anti-big government, anti-regulation, anti-tax. That's why they ended up shutting down my bank. Not because I broke any laws. I followed the laws to the letter. 
I probably followed them better than anybody. I dotted every I, I crossed every T because I knew that there was a target on my back. I mean, I'm not an idiot. I'm not going to violate the laws that I'm publicly criticizing, like, like Sam Bankman-Fried. He violated all the laws, but he was praising them. He was virtue signaling. I don't virtue signal. I was politically incorrect. And I knew I was a target, and so I made sure I did nothing wrong. And so when they investigated me and found out I did nothing wrong, they shut the bank down anyway and pretended that it did something wrong. This is a huge uh, fraud. It's, it's a crime, and then it's a cover-up of the crime. I've written Freedom of Information Act requests, FOIA requests, and they redact everything. Sometimes they send me stuff and they say, oh, we can't, we redact everything there. I say, well, this is privilege. We can't show you what's written here. I'm just asking about this. And most of the stuff I think they're not even sending me because it's the IRS, right? The IRS is not going to rat themselves out. So they commit a crime. The top guy commits the crime. And then it's his underlings that are supposed to send me all the incriminating evidence. Of course, they're not doing it. We need Congress to come in and force uh, the IRS to show all the documents that they say I can't see because they're privileged and confidential. Yeah, because they implicate them in a massive crime and, and a cover-up. I mean, I've asked a couple of you know friends I had there, and I can't seem to get anywhere. Maybe we need numbers. But the Republicans should love this issue. It's a great campaign issue because we actually have all the evidence. You know, they talk about how the IRS is targeting conservatives, but I actually have the proof. They actually did it to me. And the things that they did are, are horrific. Anybody who's looked at it, again, read that excellent article uh, that was written in the Daily Wire. Send that, that article to your local congressman. Right? You can Google it. If you take, put Euro-Pacific Bank in uh, Google and then search it and, and do it by date, like the most recent, you see the article. Right? The, it says uh, the IRS can destroy anybody. Right? That's it. And it's got a big picture of me. Uh, next to Tucker Carlson, right? Because I was on his show a lot when he was still on Fox. But this is a layup. This is a gift to the Republicans. You know, the Republicans don't want all these extra IRS agents. This is the ticket to stop it. This is how you put the IRS on the front burner during the 2024 elections by showing how they went after me and broke all these laws because I was saying stuff they didn't like. I was exercising my freedom of speech, my freedom of political expression, and they targeted me. They investigated me, found nothing wrong. They illegally leaked the grand jury investigation. You know, I got, I put it on my website, go to shiftradio.com. I got through the Freedom of Information Act request. I got the letter that uh, the reporter from the Daily Wire sent to the IRS, and they refused to answer any of his questions. Osif refused to answer any of his questions. Nobody will talk to the media. I mean, they all were talking to the New York Times when they wanted to, to, to write the story about, you know, how they thought I was guilty. But now that they know I'm innocent, they won't talk to anybody, right? Because they're embarrassed, but also they, they, they broke the law. But Luke, who was the reporter, asked them, well, have you gone after anybody that leaked this grand jury investigation? That was a crime. Have you investigated? Have you tried to find who the leaker was? They have, they're not looking for the leaker because the top guy leaked it. He doesn't have to look for who leaks it. He did it himself. He did it because he wanted the information out there. They wanted the story out there about how Peter Schiff was, was uh, uh, helping people evade taxes and launder money. So he commits the crime, and obviously he's covering up. So we need the Senate right, or the House of Representatives to come in. Because this is the executive branch. The Biden administration is not going to do anything about it because it's Biden's guy, right? Who knows? Maybe it goes all the way up to the top. Maybe somebody at the White House wanted this to happen. And, or, you know, but maybe he thought of it on his own. But uh, Biden's not going to do anything about his own administrations, his own IRS. This is his guy. He's the executive branch. So ultimately, the IRS reports to Treasury that reports to Biden. So Biden's not going to do anything. We're supposed to have checks and balances. Congress needs to come in and get this guy on the stand, get him under oath, and find out why all this stuff happened. Why did he go down to Puerto Rico? Why did they have that press conference? You know, why did we, all these unanswered questions need answers, and I want to see all the documents. I want to see if the IRS colluded with these reporters in Australia. Maybe they were just doing the reporters in Australia a favor because they, I sued them, and they were in a lot of trouble. And so this was like, you know, 
you scratch my back, I scratch yours. You know, we leaked you the information, and now we're going to give you this gift. We're going to come out and, and say all these bad things about Europe Pacific. The problem is it backfired because, you know, the commissioner was forced to say that, well, they didn't do anything wrong. They're just insolvent, which was not true. But she had to admit that we, there was no evidence of money laundering and tax evasion and that the bank was not being shut down uh, because of uh, the J-5 investigation. In fact, the, the J-5 guy, the IRS guy, had to admit that what Puerto Rico did was not related at all to their investigation. Okay, then why was he there? If, it had, if the shutdown of the bank had nothing to do with the investigation. And I got a copy of the press release that the, IR, that the J-5 sent out. The J-5 sent everybody a press release letting them know that my bank was going to be shut down. Again, the reporters knew my bank was going to be shut down before I did, right? I had no idea. And when the New York Times reporter called me to tell me my bank was going to be shut down, I immediately emailed my attorney and said, hey, this reporter says the bank's being shut down. And she said, that's impossible. It can't happen because this is not how things are normally done in Puerto Rico. You, you wouldn't just blindside a bank and shut them down out of left field. There would be some advanced warning, right? Because my lawyer, she specializes in working with OSA, right? So, you know, she says, oh, that can't be. Don't worry about it. It can't possibly be true. Of course, it was true. But when the IRS sent out these press releases, right, because the IRS basically writes all the J-5 press releases because they all reference the IRS website. So the IRS puts out a, a press release under the J-5, tells all the reporters in Australia, the U.S., uh, you know, UK, that my bank's about to be shut down as a result of the Atlantis investigation. They're claiming credit for shutting down my bank, even though they admitted that the shutdown of the bank had nothing to do with our investigation. Well, then why did they tell all the reporters that the bank they investigated was being shut down? Why didn't they tell the reporters, hey, the bank that we investigated did nothing wrong. We fully investigated them. It turns out they were completely innocent, right? That's what they should have said. But of course, they don't want to say this. So this whole thing is a crime. Right? It's a massive crime conspiracy, actually, because multiple people are involved in this crime. Let's get it exposed. Let's have the hearings. Let's have some criminal charges. Don't just fire Jim Lee. Let's bring him up on charges. Right? I mean, look at all these trumped up charges on Trump. There's real charges that can come against the IRS. So this is a great, I think, great issue for the Republicans. They just got to do it. And so maybe if enough of my followers start calling congressmen and saying, hey, we need an investigation of your Pacific bank. There's some criminal behavior. The IRS is targeting this, say conservative, right? Don't say libertarian because it's the, you know, conservative is the buzzword, right? So like Republican, I, you know, I was a Republican, right? I ran for Senate. I ran as a Republican. I, I voted for Trump, right? So well, Republican, I mean, I'm certainly not a Democrat. So they, they're targeting this Republican, small government Republican, for his political views. Uh, and so maybe if we get enough people calling enough congressmen, uh, we'll, we'll put this on the radar and maybe they'll actually do anything about it. So thanks a lot for your help. Again, remember to like and subscribe <laughs> to, uh, to this channel, uh, like the podcast, but more importantly, get on the phone, call your congressmen and get them to open up these correct congressional hearings into the IRS. I mean, it'll be great entertainment just to see this guy under oath, squirming, right, as he has to answer uh, for the crimes that he's committed. Anyway, have a great weekend, everybody, and I'll be back again next week.